Chapter Two of How to Live on Twenty Four Hours a Day by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two The Desire to Exceed One's Program. But, someone may remark, with the English disregard of everything except the point, what is he driving at with his twenty four hours a day? I have no difficulty in living on twenty four hours a day. I do all that I want to do, and still find time to go in for newspaper competitions. Surely it is a simple affair, knowing that one has only twenty-four hours a day, to content oneself with twenty-four hours a day. To you, my dear sir, I present my excuses and apologies. You are precisely the man that I have been wishing to meet for about forty years. Will you kindly send me your name and address, and state your charge for telling me how you do it? Instead of me talking to you, you ought to be talking to me. Please come forward. That you exist, I am convinced, and that I have not yet encountered you is my loss. Meanwhile, until you appear, I will continue to chat with my companions in distress. That innumerable band of souls who are haunted, more or less painfully, by the feeling that the years slip by, and slip by, and slip by, and that they have not yet been able to get their lives into proper working order. If we analyze that feeling, we shall perceive it to be, primarily, one of uneasiness, of expectation, of looking forward, of aspiration. It is a source of constant discomfort, for it behaves like a skeleton at the feast of all our enjoyments. We go to the theatre and laugh, but between the acts it raises a skinny finger at us. We rush violently for the last train, and while we are cooling a long age on the platform waiting for the last train, it promenades its bones up and down by our side, and inquires, O man, what hast thou done with thy youth? What art thou doing with thine age? You may urge that this feeling of continuous looking forward, of aspiration, is a part of life itself, and inseparable from life itself. True, but there are degrees. A man may desire to go to Mecca. His conscience tells him that he ought to go to Mecca. He fares forth either by the aid of cooks or unassisted. He may probably never reach Mecca. He may drown before he gets to Port Said. He may perish ingloriously on the coast of the Red Sea. His desire may remain eternally frustrate. Unfulfilled aspiration may always trouble him. But he will not be tormented in the same way as the man who, desiring to reach Mecca, and harried by the desire to reach Mecca, never leaves Brixton. It is something to have left Brixton. Most of us have not left Brixton. We have not even taken a cab to Ludgate Circus, and inquired from cooks the price of a conducted tour. And our excuse to ourselves is that there are only twenty-four hours in a day. 
If we further analyze our vague, uneasy aspiration, we shall, I think, see that it springs from a fixed idea that we ought to do something in addition to those things which we are loyally and morally obligated to do. We are obliged, by various codes written and unwritten, to maintain ourselves and our families, if any, in health and comfort, to pay our debts, to save, to increase our prosperity by increasing our efficiency. A task sufficiently difficult, a task which very few of us achieve. A task often beyond our skills, yet if we succeed in it, as we sometimes do, we are not satisfied. The skeleton is still with us. And even when we realize that the task is beyond our skill, that our powers cannot cope with it, we feel that we should be less discontented if we gave to our powers, already overtaxed, something still further to do. And such is, indeed, the fact. The wish to accomplish something outside their formal program is common to all men who, in the course of evolution, have risen past a certain level. Until an effort is made to satisfy that wish, the sense of uneasy waiting for something to start which has not started will remain to disturb the peace of the soul. That wish has been called by many names. It is one form of the universal desire for knowledge, and it is so strong that men whose whole lives have been given to the systematic acquirement of knowledge have been driven by it to overstep the limits of their program in search of still more knowledge. Even Herbert Spencer, in my opinion the greatest mind that ever lived, was often forced by it into agreeable little backwaters of inquiry. I imagine that in the majority of people who are conscious of the wish to live, that is to say, people who have intellectual curiosity, the aspiration to exceed formal programs takes a literary shape. They would like to embark on a course of reading. Decidedly, the British people are becoming more and more literary. But I would point out that literature by no means comprises the whole field of knowledge, and that the disturbing thirst to improve oneself, to increase one's knowledge, may well be slaked quite apart from literature. With the various ways of slaking I shall deal later. Here I merely point out to those who have no natural sympathy with literature that literature is not the only well. End of chapter 2